Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, November 15, and here are some of the stories we are covering. South Africa's Metal Workers Union accuses the government of selling out the working class over renewable energy. Western Europe is guilty of the crisis that we find ourselves in, and yet it is South Africa that's racing ahead to close down coal-fired power stations with no social plan for workers and their families who are going to be affected by this. Activists continue the fight against Amazon's Africa headquarters on historic and cultural land in South Africa. Africa has to site meeting divided over elephant management. A new invasive species of mosquito outbreak in Ethiopia. Eswatini braces for possible confrontation between political activists and security forces today, Tuesday. The people of South Africa decided to march to Mbabani. They are marching for the release of the, of, of the incarcerated MPs. And Uganda confirms Ebola in its eastern Jinja region. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, also known as NOMSA, is accusing President Cyril Ramaphosa's government of selling out the working class with the government's just energy investment plan. Revealed at the COP27 conference in Egypt, the plan envisages decarbonizing South Africa's economy to reduce emissions that contribute to climate change. NOMSA National Spokesperson Pakamile Subi Majola says while the union supports the transition from coal to renewable energy, the process should happen at a pace that South Africa can afford. She also tells me that the rapid decommissioning of coal-fired power plants could cost at least 100,000 jobs. What we mean when we say that Ramaphosa sold out the working class of South Africa, we mean that this $8.5 billion investment plan, 97% of it is loans. So it's funding in the form of loans. Secondly, the South African working class, in terms of the plan, it doesn't speak at all about ownership, whether it's ownership through workers' cooperatives or through some kind of a share ownership scheme. So we're talking here about indebting generations of the working class to invest in this energy, and it's extremely expensive, and yet uh, the, the funding is all loans. Less than 1% of it is actually going to be allocated to cushioning workers and their families whose lives are going to be severely disrupted by the job losses caused by the closure of power stations in the province of Mbumalanga. And so this is why we say that they've sold out the working class. The wealthy international financial institutions are going to make a fortune at the expense of workers and their families in South Africa. As you are aware, the world is concerned about climate change and global warming. And I think um, President Ramaphosa's proposal seeks to decarbonize South Africa's economy and thereby reducing emissions. Isn't this good for the climate? First of all, we have to understand, and this is where NUMSA is coming from. NUMSA says that we support the move from coal to renewable energy, but that the transition should be at a pace and at a cost 
that the country can afford. Now, first and foremost, South Africa does not lead the globe in terms of its contribution to carbon and to the challenge that we have of of climate change. South Africa is a developing nation. Western Europe is guilty of the crisis that we find ourselves in. And yet it is South Africa that's racing ahead to close down coal-fired power stations with no social plan for workers and their families who are going to be affected by this. As we speak right now, Germany is reopening 20 mothballed coal-fired power stations to augment their energy needs. South Africa today suffers from daily rolling blackouts called load shedding because we cannot guarantee energy supply. But here we are racing to close down coal-fired power stations. You predict that about 100,000 workers will lose their jobs when coal power plants are decommissioned. Can these workers not get their jobs also in renewable energy? It is not me predicting. It is the Council for Scientific Research in South Africa, the CSIR. They're the officially recognized state institution that does research on behalf of the South African government. They did research and they found that the closure of coal-fired power stations would result in at least 100,000 jobs, indirect jobs, lost along the value chain because Mpumalanga as a province depends on coal for its economic development. And because the South African government has not devised or designed a social plan which will replace these jobs which will be lost along the value chain as a result of the closure of of these coal-fired power stations, it does mean that these workers and their families are at risk. That's just a fact. Pakamili Subi Majoja is the national spokesperson for the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, also known as NOPSA. She was speaking with us from Johannesburg, South Africa. Activists fighting construction of the African headquarters of the online retail giant Amazon will meet with lawyers today, Tuesday, to plan their next move after a court lifted an injunction that had temporarily blocked further work on the complex. The activists say the building site in South Africa has historic significance to local tribes. Supporters of the project say it will generate badly needed jobs and respect local sensitivities. Their key stock reports from Cape Town. Most recently, the site was known as the River Club with a somewhat run-down nine-hole golf course, a driving range and a conference facility. Now, what's become known as the Amazon building is rising fast. A court ruling last week that overturned an injunction to halt construction has been applauded by the developer Lesbiak Leisure Properties Trust. The trust argues that the mixed-use development where Amazon will be the anchor tenant will create 19,000 much-needed jobs. James Tannenberger is the trust spokesperson. Lesbeck Leisure Properties Trust welcomes the judgment, which is a major win for all Capetonians who stand to benefit from the 4.6 billion rand project. This judgment sends a clear message to those who have tried to stop the development at all costs, with little or no regard to the social upliftment of the surrounding communities. 4.6 billion rand comes to about 266 million US dollars. There has been no comment from Amazon on the controversy.
The activists who obtained the injunction, the Observatory Civic Association, which represents some residents of the observatory suburb where the development is situated, and Tariq Jenkins, a council member of the Goringai Kona Koikoi, an indigenous group, say the fight is not over. They argue the land should be declared a World Heritage Site because this is where, in 1510, the first known battle between South Africans and European colonialists took place. A Khoikhoi army defeated invading Portuguese who had slaughtered scores of their women and children. The tribes call it the place of the first encounter. The activists also have environmental concerns as the site marks the confluence of two rivers, the Lisbiak and the Black. The injunction granted to them in March was rescinded last Tuesday after the court heard from other members of Jenkins' tribe who said he did not have the power to represent them and that the Goringai Kona were in fact in favour of the development. This effectively means they are siding with a group called the First Nations Collective, which says it represents the majority of the Khoisan tribes and has been backing the development. Leslie London is a University of Cape Town professor and chairperson of the Observatory Civic Association. London says he believes Jenkins was outmaneuvered by fellow tribe members. London, however, says all is not lost as courts still have to conduct a review of whether the development was legally approved. The case is still pending. Uh, it's not the end of the case. They haven't thrown out the merits of the case. I don't want to go down in history as being an interesting case. We still want to win it. He says a large part of the 150,000 square meter project has already been built. Overall, uh, they probably have built about 40% of the whole build. Yeah, so there's a lot still to come. The Amazon's going to get higher, and um, there's going to be a lot more building. The First Nations Collective spokesperson, Zenzile Khoisan, feels strongly that the new development will honour Indigenous tribes' history. It will include a heritage centre, a garden of memory, and roads and pathways with Khoisan names. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, is bracing for possible confrontation between political activists and security forces. The activists have called for a public march today, Tuesday, to the country's high court in the capital, Mbabane, to demand the release of two members of parliament. Basidi Mambuza and Mtadeni Dube were arrested and jailed last July while delivering a petition calling for democratic reforms. They were charged with motivating political terrorism. The Eswatini government has postponed school exams scheduled for today, Tuesday. At the same time, the Swaziland Transport Workers' Union will suspend all public transport. The country's acting prime minister has promised to use all available resources to provide security. Mbongwa Dramini is president of the Swaziland National Association of Teachers. He tells me that Tuesday's march is organized by the political party assembly and the multi-stakeholders forum. The people of Sunday have decided to march to Mbabani. What are they marching to the capital city? Why? They are marching for the release of the, of, of the incarcerated MPs. We hear that this has also impacted uh, schools. Is that right? Yeah. 
What you should understand is that the Form 5s have started writing their examination. They started today, and they're supposed to write their second papers tomorrow. The government has said that things will be normal tomorrow. They're expecting learners and teachers to be at school, while the public transport workers have vowed that there will be no transport tomorrow. But the government has also decided to postpone the Form 5 examination to the 9th of December. But they are insisting that schools are going to be proceeding tomorrow. Our main worry is that how can we proceed with uh, learning when there will be no transport? And when government saying everything will be normal tomorrow, but at the same time they are postponing from five examination, they are speaking in folk terms. You said there will be no public transport. Why? And the public transport operators, they have said that they are also marching to Mbabane. They are joining the Swazi people to march for the release of the MPs. They said any transport that is going to be available is going to Mbabane. Any transport going to another direction, they are going to make sure that if they stop it, and whilst they can also ban it if they insist in going the opposite direction. Now, who are these people organizing this march to the capital? The march is organized by the political party assembly and the multi-stakeholder forum. They have joined together to organize the march. In actual fact, there are some people who are sympathizers of the service. They have organized themselves into more of a guerrilla team such that they fight the security forces because they believe that the security forces, they are hindering the progress towards democracy. So the security forces, because we know in such events, they make sure that they attack unarmed citizens. So now in revenge, these people whom they call themselves solidarity forces, they visit the soldiers and police at night at their homes and attack them for attacking the citizens who were marching. The acting prime minister is uh, warning and describing this as terrorism, advising so-called terrorists to stop causing anarchy. It is quite an anomaly that is happening here. There is a difference between a terrorist and a freedom fighter. Because the citizens here, they are frustrated. They are not allowed to protest. So the government, each time the, each time the citizens protest, they unleash soldiers and police and uh, correctional services personnel to attack those who are protesting. While they are protesting peacefully, they attack them, shoot them with live rounds of ammunition. And in this world, there is no way where we have seen that protesting workers have been attacked by soldiers. We don't understand the reason why the government is doing so. The question is, now who are those terrorists now? Mbongo Adramini is the president of the Swaziland National Association of Teachers. He was speaking with us from the capital, Mbabane. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barty, Washington. Today is Tuesday, November 15. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
African heads of state are going to an international meeting in Panama today, Tuesday, of CITES, the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Some of them are divided over the management of the continent's wildlife, including the call for a total ban of the trade in elephant products. From Habarini, Botswana, reporter Kumdise Dube has the details. Burkina Faso, Equatorial Guinea, Mali, and Senegal want the CITES meeting to elevate African elephants to the highest listing, which would prohibit hunting of the animals. But countries of SADC, the Southern African Development Community, led by Botswana and Zimbabwe, are pushing for greater freedom to trade in elephant products, including a one-off sale of ivory stockpiles. Gabelo Sinyazo is Botswana's Director of Wildlife and National Parks and is in Panama for the CITES meeting. Really, our call and plea to um, further, you know, further um, parties that um, are involved with CITES is for them to ensure that um, SADC as um, the, the, the area that supports the highest numbers of elephants it needs to have a greater voice in, in directing um, how these resources are, are used and, and, and traded. He says southern African countries will present a common position on the management of elephant species across the region. We have uh, as SADC member states have commissioned um, some work to help us look through the options um, of, of, of how we could trade uh, within CITES and how we could trade outside of CITES. And at the appropriate uh, moments uh, and, and as soon as our ministers of, of environment across SADC have taken a decision um, which would be uh, partly influenced by what uh, happens at, at the upcoming CITES COP, um, then that that platform, the, the, the Council of, of um, Environmental Ministers from SADC um, would uh, direct us and then we would uh, execute whatever uh, instructions are, are given to us. Botswana-based conservationist Neil Fit says changes are necessary within CITES to accommodate evolving conservation challenges. I do think it needs a total rethink on how it is structured and how it should operate. Things have changed a lot in the last 50 years. Um, whether or not uh, the country should have voting according to the amount of species, that would be very hard to do as we're actually finding new species everywhere in the world almost on a daily basis, if not on more than a daily basis. So that would be an extremely difficult um, difficult area for someone to actually pinpoint down. FIT says the push by other African countries to elevate the listing of elephants to Appendix 1, which would ban hunting and trade, might not see the light of the day. It's always a hot topic. Um, driven this time by more African countries, northern African countries, as opposed to the southern African countries, as opposed to the rest of the world, which actually has been driving several of the different aspects of it. Do I think it will get through? I don't think so. Um, that's my opinion, and I don't think it should. I think we should have some on Appendix 2 and some on Appendix 1. Elephant populations in most African countries are on a decline due to poaching and lack of habitat. But in southern Africa, the numbers are increasing, standing at more than 220,000. The CITES conference in Panama ends on Friday, November 25. For VOA, this is Mkondisi Dube in Havroni, Botswana.
We reported yesterday that the launch last Friday of Liberia's week-long population and housing census was a debacle. According to local media reports, the census not only did not get off the ground, but it was also plagued by many problems from the start, including no money for enumerators, poor planning, and no equipment. Now, President George Weir on Monday fired two officials of the Liberia Institute for Statistics and Geo-Information Services, also known as Ledgers. One of those fired is Alex Williams, the Deputy Director General for Statistics and Data Processing at Ledgers. He tells me President Weir has no powers to dismiss him. Mr. Board 11 says to you that it is mind-boggling and unfortunate that the president will be misled into firing me. And the reasons are very simple. Mr. Borte, the act establishing the Liberal Institute of Statistics and Geo-Information, specifically Section 58.2, states clearly that the board of directors of ladies are told with the authority to appoint three deputy directors general. And for the record, I was never appointed by President Ria or rather about the vote in line with the latest act, and I saw hard in the president who did not appoint me be the one to fire me. Number two, I tender in my letter of resignation to the board of directors of ladies on Saturday. In fact, one of the board members, who happens to be the Minister of Gender, Children, and Social Protection, Minister Tiso Sirita, acknowledged receipt of the communication and calls for count. And so how can I already be a person who has been signed at the same time be someone who the president will be dismissing? According to President Weir, all those holding positions of public trust should act with diligence and seriousness in discharge of their duties. I'm sure he's referring to the debacle that uh, came with the, the launch of the census on Friday. What I'm saying to you, Mr. Borte, someone who has resigned cannot be dismissed. Number two, I am not a presidential appointee, and as such, I cannot be dismissed by the president. Referring to the issue of the tobacco and failure of the census, I have earlier warned the government and the board of directors of religious and the legislature that census wasn't feasible in October and even on Friday because of multiplicities of reasons, both administrative and technical, that are outlined. And so if there is an issue of failure of census, I should be the one being celebrated. I should be the one being made reference to. I should be the one being consulted to help save our country and not the one being dismissed. So, Mr. Williams, do you believe you have been made a fall guy for this census debacle? From the start of everything, ladies have been marked by rampant corruption and misuse of public resources and disregard to Minimal accounting and financial standards. I have raised these issues long ago. The Liberia Anti-Corruption Commission has investigated the entity, have found culpable my colleagues in person of the Director General, Professor Princess F. Rare, the Deputy Director General for Information and Coordination, Mr. Wilmot Smith Jr., the Deputy Director General for Administration, Mr. Lawrence George, the Controller of of the institution dominated and rest of others guilty of violating the public financial management law and the public procurement concession acts of our country. These reports were being outlined and placed out and given to the president since June of this year. 
And so if the president is sincere and genuine about fighting corruption and wanting to penalize those who are found guilty of this act, the president should be utilizing the LACC report to suspend these people long ago or dismiss them rather than pocketing an individual who is sincere who has served his country with diligence. Mr. Williams, thank you so much for speaking with us on Daybreak Africa. Thanks a little. That was Alex Williams, Deputy Director General for Statistics and Data Processing at the Liberia Institute for Statistics and Geo-Information Services. He was speaking with us from Liberia's capital, Monrovia. An unusual malaria outbreak in Ethiopia this year signals the spread of a new invasive species of mosquito. Experts say it threatens to unravel two decades of gains in malaria control across sub-Saharan Africa. Vio Steve Baragona has more. In the Ethiopian city of Dawa this year, malaria sickened more than 2,400 people just by May. That's more than 10 times the number of cases in all of 2019, says Fitzen Gurma Tadesa, a molecular biologist at Ethiopia's Armar Hansen Research Institute. It came during the dry season when you don't expect the Anopheles gambi, the native mosquito, to survive. Fitzum says the nearby nation of Djibouti had something similar happen after an invasive species of South Asian mosquito called Anopheles stevensi was first identified there in 2012. His team suspected it had now arrived in Dredawa. Sure enough, they found infected Anopheles stevensi mosquitoes around the homes of malaria patients in the city. His team is the first to connect the invasive mosquito to a major outbreak in Ethiopia. And he says people can help by covering water containers tightly and getting rid of unneeded containers. And keep using bed nets and indoor sprays, he adds, because native malaria mosquitoes are still a problem. Steve Barragona, VOA News. And that's it for this Tuesday, November 15th edition of Daybreak Africa. I am